This should be a part six, our final session today. Now, don't rejoice too much over there. I saw some people saying amen when I said the final session today, you know. The final session on the holiness movement. And on our final session, I thought we would uh, do what I call the biblical doctrine of sanctification. We've been talking about it like crazy. But we've been looking at it from the standpoint of the holiness movement and some of the problems with it. And I thought it would be good in our final session to uh, just survey the general doctrine. If we were going to say, okay, what does the Bible teach about sanctification? Some of this we've covered, but it'll be good maybe that we have it down in one section together. So come on in and get your notes. And we will begin here on page 50, Roman numeral 8, the biblical doctrine of sanctification. Now, we've, I've got this divided into two sections. Uh, capital A there is the explanation of sanctification. And then on page 56, we'll have the means of sanctification. How exactly... Is sanctification accomplished? And what is our part? Because unlike regeneration or justification, we have a part to play. We participate in our sanctification. And what is exactly, what exactly are we expected to do in relation to our sanctification? I say here under number one, because God is a holy God, He wants his people to be holy, as Peter says. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. The work of God that makes us holy is called sanctification, of course. The problem we've been addressing the last five weeks has to do with the process of how God makes us holy. And in order to understand that process, I think it will be helpful to review again some relationships. The first one is the relationship between justification and sanctification that we've actually said a lot about. These two aspects of the doctrine of salvation, that is justification and sanctification, are understood as two benefits or double benefits or dual benefits of the fact that we are in Christ, our union with Christ. Here's what the Wayne Grudem says about union with Christ, he defines it. Union with Christ is a phrase used to summarize several different relationships between believers in Christ through which Christians receive every benefit of salvation. These relationships include the fact that we are in Christ, Christ is in us, we are like Christ, and we are with Christ. Union with Christ is commonly expressed in the New Testament the words in Christ or their equivalent. So I just did a search last night on in Christ in the NIV and it comes up about 85 times. So... We're used to seeing that phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So, for instance, I called up some verses. Romans 6, 23 says that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. So salvation or eternal life is in Christ, as we'd expect. Specifically, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to those sanctified in Christ. Sanctification is part of salvation. It's in Christ. Seeking to be justified in Christ. So justification is in Christ. So I'm just focusing on these two particular benefits. 
because they're important in this doctrine of sanctification, they both have to do with righteousness, justification and sanctification. Page 51. How are justification and sanctification to be distinguished? We went over this in the first lesson, but let's just review for a few moments. The word justify is a forensic or legal term with the meaning acquit. It is the normal word to use when the accused in a courtroom is declared not guilty. It means to declare righteous, not to make righteous. Grudem says justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. Theologians talk about the righteousness of Christ being imputed or credited to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. As a legal declaration, justification is non-experiential, meaning that it is an act of God with respect to us. Thus, justification makes no internal change within us. So justification is about our legal status, not about our character. Justification is what, is what assures that Bill Combs will make it into heaven. <clears throat> Bill Combs' interest in, in heaven is not going to be based upon the degree of his sanctification, the degree of his actual personal righteousness. But Bill Combs' interest into heaven will be possible because the righteousness of Christ has been applied to Bill Combs. And God looks at Bill Combs in justification as being righteous in Christ. Number three, sanctification, on the other hand, is entirely experiential, meaning that is an act of God within us, with the result that the disposition of the immaterial aspect of our being, that our spirit soul, is changed. The basic meaning of the term sanctify is to set apart, to make holy. In sanctification, the believer is set apart from sin and set apart to God. In justification, God declares us righteous. In sanctification, God makes us righteous or holy. So God sees Bill Combs in two ways. He sees him in Christ as being perfectly righteous, the righteousness of Christ. That's why he's going to heaven. But God can see the real Bill Combs. He sees my character. He sees my level of sanctification. And he's interested in making me righteous in practice. That's sanctification. Number four, as the diagram above seeks to illustrate... There are not two acts of faith related to justification and sanctification. That's the error of all second blessing theologies we've discussed in this series. We do not believe in order to be justified and believe a second time in order to be sanctified. The faith of justification is the instrumental cause of sanctification. We are not saved by faith, but by faith. Faith is certainly required in sanctification, but it's simply a continuation of the faith imparted to us at conversion. The second blessing theologies all make an artificial and unscriptural temporal separation between justification and sanctification. They argue that one can be justified but not sanctified. Certainly all believers are sanctified are not sanctified, excuse me, certainly not all believers are sanctified to the same extent. Believers can be found at every possible stage of spiritual development. Number five. Whereas justification happens instantaneously at the moment of conversion and is thus a past, never-to-be-repeated event in the life of the believer, sanctification is a lifelong process. It begins at the moment of conversion and continues throughout the believer's life. The Bible speaks of three aspects or phases of sanctification. That is, 
if you look at the, if you did a concordance search on the word sanctification, you would find that the word sanctify or holy is used in three different ways. Each of these, I say, is experiential in that each one affects a change within the believer. The first and third are instantaneous. The second is progressive. Okay, let's talk about these three, at least the first two here. There is what the Bible, when the Bible speaks about sanctification, sometimes in certain passages, it speaks about a sanctification that is past, past or initial. So sometimes the Bible says that Bill Combs has been sanctified. There is a sense in which he has been. What sense is that? The believer is definitively, and sometimes this is called definitive sanctification, The believer is definitively, that is, once and for all, set apart from the dominion of sin. This is the aspect of sanctification Paul was describing in Romans 6 when he spoke of the believer being dead to sin at the time of conversion. We studied that a couple weeks ago. The believer is no longer a slave to sin. For sin shall no longer be your master, Paul says, because you're not under law but under grace. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin... You have come to obey from your hearts the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So this initial sanctification, this past sanctification that Bill Combs has experienced, hopefully, if he's a genuine believer, this this definitive past sanctification means that the power of sin, the dominion of sin, has been broken. Sin's still a problem. Sin is still within Bill Combs, but the power, the dominion of sin has been broken so it no longer rules over Bill Combs like it used to when he was an unbeliever. shouldn't use Bill Combs here. He's not such a great example, so forget that. (laughs) Definitive sanctification is seen in other texts. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So here's Paul talking to those nasty Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, he says, You were sanctified. Well, we normally say they needed some sanctification. Yeah, they were sanctified, but they still needed some sanctification. What he means when he says you were, that's that past initial sanctification. That means the power of sin was broken in their lives. They are now slaves to righteousness. Hebrews says, and by that will, we have been made holy, that is sanctified through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This first aspect of sanctification is closely tied to regeneration, so closely tied that we might think of it as definitive sanctification regeneration, consisting of a negative side, this definitive sanctification, and a positive side. So there's this past aspect of sanctification that takes place immediately when we're converted. It's closely tied to regeneration. It makes a change within us. We can be called saints now because we have been set apart. That is, the power of sin has been broken and we've been given new life. So you could look at this uh, past sanctification as having two parts, as I show here with this union with Christ, the chart. You've got justification, which means I'm declared righteous. And then you've got this definitive sanctification, this past sanctification that happens right at regeneration and starts producing holiness. 
We can see that in various passages like Romans 6 where the negative side is said and then the positive side. They're both the same thing. They're both the same act. Definitive sanctification is so closely tied to regeneration, I can distinguish them, but they're really inseparable. So Romans 6 says, we died to sin, our old self was crucified, but we were raised to walk in newness of life. That's that new life, that regenerative life that we receive when we're saved. Colossians says, you died, you have taken off your old self with its practices. That's that the power of sin is broken. That's that definitive once and for all sanctification. You died to sin and you have put on the new self. That's regeneration. That's that new nature that you have received. B, here's what we're interested today in our lives primarily is B, progressive sanctification. I am being sanctified. The believer is progressively being set apart from the power and practice of sin. Throughout this life, the believer is progressively becoming holy while seeing sin is being extirpated. There's Ed Martin's favorite word. It means eradicated, removed. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. So Paul told the Corinthians they had been sanctified, but he tells us the Thessalonians, you need to be sanctified because there's a past and there's a present progressive sanctification. We still need sanctification, and it's God's will. Therefore, don't let sin reign your mortal body, Paul says in Romans 6. Yeah, the power of sin is broken, but don't let sin reign. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. As I say here, most of the New Testament, Testament, hundreds and hundreds of verses is dealing with this aspect of sanctification. Almost everything we hear here, Sunday after Sunday, almost everything we hear, 99% of the stuff we hear, is about progressive sanctification. What we heard this morning was about progressive sanctification. Then there is future, our entire sanctification. That's glorification. And you can see the chart there from Grudem. We have conversion, that's when that initial definitive sanctification takes place. Then number two is the progressive sanctification, that's going on now. And then at death or the rapture, we'll be completely sanctified. We won't have any sin left at all. That's what number letter C is talking about, but I'll skip that for a second here because of time. Number six, theologian Anthony Hokema defines sanctification and I kind of like his definition, as the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit involving our responsible participation by which he delivers us as justified sinners from the pollution of sin. Now, by that, he's talking about that past sanctification where the power of sin is broken and renews our entire nature according to the image of God and enables us to live lives that are pleasing to him. So there's the chart we've seen before. When we're saved, when we're unsaved, we're totally depraved. We're just sinfully corrupt. And then this new nature is imparted. This new holiness is imparted. And that grows. Depravity is extirpated. It's removed. Holiness increases. Page 54. 
Holcomb observes that sanctification delivers us from the pollution of sin, but in Keswick theology, with this doctrine of counteraction, there is no removal of that which is sinful. So I'm going to go back here for a moment because I want to show the contrast between what we've been studying and what I think the Bible teaches here. Here's that diagram that I've showed you before, which shows the old nature and the new nature. And in Keswick and these other second blessing theologies, you have what's counteraction of the old and new nature by the Holy Spirit. As the diagram above illustrates, sanctification in the Keswick system produces no real change within the believer. Nothing in the believer is actually sanctified. Nothing in the believer is made holy. The believer receives a new nature or disposition at conversion to go with their old nature. But the process of sanctification renders no change in these natures. Here's Chafer explaining. Having received the divine nature, or that new nature there, while still retaining the old nature, every child of God possesses two natures. Two natures. One is incapable of sinning. That's the new nature. The other is incapable of holiness. So in the Keswick system, you have two natures, but they don't change. Nothing really changes within you. With this scheme, one can see how the language of Wesley's sinless perfection is always present. If the old nature is perfectly counteracted by the new nature, if you're filled with the Spirit and the old and new, the, the old nature is counteracted by the new nature, the believer need not sin, indeed cannot sin in that particular state. The problem, number eight, with this view of sanctification, <clears throat> it seems to leave a part of the individual, the old nature, untouched by either regeneration or sanctification. If, as Chafer says, the new nature is incapable of sinning, the new nature is incapable of sinning, we're left with a part of man that needs no saving. What truly happens in sanctification, as B.B. Warfield explains, is that God cures our sinning precisely by curing our sinful nature. He makes the tree good that the fruit may be good. It is, in other words, precisely by eradicating our sinfulness, the corruption of our hearts, that he delivers us from sinning. To imagine that we can be saved from the power of sin without the eradication of the corruption in which the power of sin has its seat is to imagine that an evil tree can be compelled to bring forth good fruit. Now, Warfield right here is really responding to Chafer directly when he says that. When Warfield uses number nine, the term eradication, he does not mean the instantaneous, complete eradication of sin taught by John Wesley, but a progressive and gradual process. Counteraction is an insufficient way of describing the nature of progressive sanctification. The Holy Spirit does much more than counteraction. Warfield continues here. He says, The Spirit dwells within us in order to affect us, affect us, not merely our acts. See, in, this, in the Keswick view here, nothing inside us changes. My soul and spirit is not changed at all. It stays the same. But Werfel says, the Holy Spirit dwells within us to affect us, not merely our acts, in order to eradicate our sinfulness and not merely to counteract its effects. The Scripture's way of cleansing the stream is to cleanse the fountain. They are not content to attack the stream of our activities. They attack directly the heart of which the issues of life flow. But they give us no promise that the fountain will be completely cleansed 
all at once, and therefore no promise that the stream will flow perfectly purely from the beginning. We are not denying that the Spirit leads us in all our acts as well as purifies our heart, but we are denying that His whole work in us or His whole immediate work in us or His fundamental work in us terminates on our activities and can be summed up in the word counteraction. Counteraction there is and suppression there is, but most fundamentally of all, there is eradication in all of these work one in the self-same Spirit. So number 10, I'm going to try to explain what he's saying here. In sanctification, the old nature is progressively being eradicated and the new nature is being nourished so that it will ultimately supplant the old. However, ultimate perfection, final and complete sanctification, the total eradication of the old nature and the complete implantation of the new nature is not, as Scripture makes clear, the believer's portion as long as he dwells in this mortal body. But it is the ultimate destiny of every believer for one day we shall see him like, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So there's the chart. The old nature, we receive a new nature, a new disposition, and as that new disposition, that new nature eventually supplants the old nature. It doesn't happen completely until glorification of. Number 11, sanctification, as we've noted, affects our very nature. But it is not a change of substance, but a change in direction, a change in disposition. Whereas the unbeliever has only one direction, one disposition towards sin and away from God, the unbeliever is now a new creation with a new direction, a new disposition towards God and holiness. All of this means that for the first time we are enabled to live lives that are pleasing to God. At the moment of justification, the sinner is regenerated and their, their transformation begins. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There is no such thing as justification that does not issue in sanctification. Sanctification is inevitable, though it's not automatic. It involves our responsible participation, as Hokema reminds us. Number 12, page 56. There is real victory over sin... For all justified persons. It begins, as Romans 6 teaches, with the victory over the dominion of sin, which rules the unbeliever. But though it is a real and genuine actual victory, it's a qualified victory. There is no life of victory over conscious sin, as Keswick theology would lead us to believe. Unless, unless sin has been completely eradicated, and that happens at glorification, sin still dwells within the believer. And as theologian John Murray reminds us, The believer ought always to be conscious of it as such. To fail to be conscious of it, to fail to be conscious of sin, amounts either to hypocrisy or self-deception. To have sin in us and not be conscious of it is itself grave sin. It's culpable ignorance or culpable ignoring. As long as sin remains in us, there cannot be freedom from conscious sin for the simple reason that in the person who is sensitive to the gravity of sin and the demands of holiness, this sin that remains is always reflected in the consciousness. And, you know, if you talk to people who have been saved a long time, they seem to be mature, they will tell you over and over again, I'm more conscious of sin now than I was when I was first saved. You don't lose that consciousness. It becomes more with you all the time how sinful you are. 
Every, since sin is not completely eradicated, it was always produce conflict within the believer. The filling of the Holy Spirit does not lessen the conflict. On the contrary, the Spirit produces the conflict. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. This normal conflict within all believers is described by Paul in Romans seven fourteen and following, but we won't take time. To read that today. Number 13. It is up to us to continue to work our salvation, that's our sanctification, with fear and trembling, because we know that it is God who works in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Sanctification is accomplished as we put to death the misdeeds of the body, but we cannot do that in our own power but by the Spirit. So that Romans 8.13 is an important verse. If we by the Spirit, if you by the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body, that's really sanctification, but I won't take time to dwell on that anymore. God works in us for our sanctification and we work. But it's only because God works in us that we work. Sanctification requires our strenuous participation. All the time battling the world, the flesh, and the devil until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So let's talk about the means of sanctification. How is sanctification accomplished? And I want to mention four elements. And these elements are related. And I've tried to draw a little diagram here. It's a virtuous circle. We see God's providence And then we see scripture, prayer, and fellowship, things that we are to do that require our participation. So on page 57, let's talk about God's control of our sanctification. That's God's providence. And then on page 58, we're going to talk about our participation in sanctification. That's the ordinary means of grace. So first of all, we'll talk about God's control of our sanctification or God's providence. When we speak of God's providence, we are normally referring to God's activity in supervising both human actions and human history in order to bring his creation to its predetermined goal and design. Paul says in Ephesians 1.11, In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out most things in conformity with the purpose of his will. No, it doesn't say that. It says who works out everything. God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. There is nothing in the universe that's happening that's not in conformity with his will. There isn't any speck of dust or any stray electron floating around. God's in control of everything. Though God occasionally uses miracles to fulfill his purpose, these are quite rare, being mainly confined to three specific periods in history, time of Moses, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. God usually brings his purposes to pass by means of secondary or indirect causation. That is, God is controlling everything, but he normally does it by indirect or secondary causation. That is, God uses the normal events of our lives to bring about his plan for us. 
If we can apply the promise of Philippians 4.19 to ourselves, and my God will meet all your needs, we nevertheless realize that God does that indirectly through means. When we need food, God does not create food out of thin air and have it appear in our refrigerator. He supplies us with a job or with money or someone gives us food. God uses means, providential means. So this is an important point. God is carrying out his plan in the universe. Everything that's happening in your life, he is in control. But he's bringing about these things by providential means, secondary causation. But the tendency among Christians is to want the miracles. We want the miracles. And we think somehow God is more glorified in miracles than he is in providence. And that's just false. So when I get up in the morning, every morning, and I get my bowl of Cheerios every morning for the last too many years. (laughs) When I get that bowl of Cheerios, God doesn't create those Cheerios. But God deserves just as much thanks for those Cheerios as if he did create them. Because God is responsible for me having those. He made all of it possible. The growing of the oats and the growing of the materials that are in there. The manufacturing. God is in control of all of that. C. In the same way, God brings about our sanctification by providential means. The the normal circumstances of life, everything that happens in our lives, whether it's good providence, say a raise at work, having a special prayer request answered positively, or having a successful surgery to cure a serious health issue, or whether it's a bad providence, or some may call it a hard providence, finding out you have cancer, losing your job, having a family member turn away from Christ. All these are not accidental, but it's part of God's plan for our lives. Paul says in Romans 8, 28 through 30, and we know that in some things God works for the good. No, it doesn't say that, does it? And we know in all things, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's sanctification. God is working all these things for our sanctification, that he might be the firstborn. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. So this is talking about sanctification. God is working all things for our good, for our sanctification, no matter what it is. D, God uses providential means to bring about our sanctification, and one of these is suffering. Vance Havner said, this world is not our home. We lament its sin-wrecked condition, riddled with disease and death and distress. But for the growing of Christian character, it's a proper training ground. George Whitfield observes, suffering times are a Christian's best improving times. And scripture talks about this. Romans eight seventeen. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering, nor that we may share in his glory. Paul said in Romans 5, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Really? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character. 
So that suffering produces character if we respond properly. 2 Corinthians 12 was mentioned this morning. I know a man in Christ, Paul tells the Corinthians, who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Paul says, I was caught up into heaven and I saw some things that I can't even tell you about. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, some physical impairment, some suffering, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Paul, you need this suffering for your sanctification. Even the great apostle needed this physical torment for Paul's sanctification so he wouldn't become conceited. E, God uses providential trials and temptations to bring about our sanctification. James 1, 2 through 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because, you know, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So these trials, F, and sufferings we endure are part of God's discipline. The writer of Hebrew reminds us, they, our fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Our part is to recognize that what is happening in our lives, these good and bad providences, are ultimately for our good, our sanctification, and God's glory. We must learn to submit in humble obedience. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always submitted, obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation, your sanctification with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. What about our participation? Our participation Here's where we talk about what's normally called the ordinary means of grace. Unlike justification or regeneration, we all have an active part to play in our progressive sanctification. God has provided us with resources, sometimes called means of grace, that we must use to bring about our sanctification. We use these in connection with God's providential workings in our lives. So these are all related, as you can see by the chart there. God is providentially working, and we use these means he has given us. God is not working miraculously to bring about our sanctification, but through means. Ordinary means of grace. Grace. God's not doing miracles every day. He's using the ordinary means of grace. And so we have to be careful not to neglect these ordinary means of grace. Most of us are familiar with the name Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks lived in Detroit most of her life. She died here in 2005. But she was born in Alabama. And in 1955, after working all day, she got on a city bus. And because she was an African-American, she was not allowed to sit in the front of the bus. So she moved toward the back of the bus more toward the middle of the bus and found a seat and sat down. But as more and more 
white passengers got on the bus, the black folk were supposed to, by city ordinance, move further to the back of the bus, get up and move. And as more and more white people got on, black people were supposed to move back and stand if they're necessary and get off the bus if there wasn't enough room. So the bus is going along. More and more people are getting on. The bus driver comes back and tells the black folk, you're going to have to move to the back. They move to the back. But Rosa Parks, she doesn't move. She sits in her seat. And she says, I'm not moving back. And the bus driver says, that's going to be a problem. So he calls the police. She's arrested. She's taken to jail. And the rest, they say, is history. Now, there's a sense in what Rosa Parks did was a rather ordinary thing, an ordinary act. She just sat down in a seat on a bus. She just sat in a particular place. She sat in the wrong seat, according to the law, the city ordinance. But the act in itself was a rather ordinary act. I'm not saying that it didn't take courage to do what she did. It took extraordinary courage to do what she did. And what she did had extraordinary consequences uh, for her, for the civil rights movement, and for our whole nation. My point is that Rosa Parks' rather ordinary act of sitting on a bus had extraordinary consequences. And that's the way it is, I'm using that as an illustration of what we think of sometimes as these rather ordinary things in our lives. Scripture, prayer, and fellowship. We're so familiar with them that we can just sort of take them for granted. The second blessing theologies that we've been studying have emphasized we need some extraordinary experience. If you're going to be sanctified, you need some miraculous, extraordinary experience in your life. And that's just not true. God uses the ordinary means of grace to bring about our sanctification. Let's look at those on page 59. We're familiar with these. Certainly, we hear a lot about them. Scripture is the first one, obviously. Sometimes called the primary means of grace, since without Scripture, we wouldn't know anything about sanctification. We wouldn't know anything about God, for that matter, particularly. Not much. We'd know what we know from creation. But everything we know particularly about God and salvation and Christ and sanctification comes from Scripture. And Jesus himself says in John 17, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification comes by means of Scripture's truth. Peter says, like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow in your salvation. Acts twenty thirty two. Paul tells the Ephesian elders, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. We're all familiar with 2 Timothy 3.16. Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And Romans 12.4, Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind on the word of God. So scripture provides us with the norm or standard to identify what is right and wrong. It identifies sins that we must shun and the virtues that we are to embrace. Scripture tells us what holiness looks like. It tells us what resources we have as we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. How to use these resources. Therefore, obviously, we must hear, we must read, we must study, we must memorize, meditate, 
correlate and apply God's word. Most everything we do at CBC is usually centered on scripture. We must take great pains to take heed to the instructions we receive week by week here at CBC. There is certainly prayer. B.B. Warfield concluded, what is prayer but the very adjustment of the heart for the influx of God's grace? We know we're commanded to pray in Scripture. As I say, sanctification is a struggle, a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Through prayer, we receive power to put to death the misdeeds of the body. We need God's help every moment to battle sin and to submit to his will. The writer of Hebrews encourages us about the important role of prayer. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. To help us in our time of need. In our daily trials and temptations, we can easily become depressed and anxious. So Paul reminds us, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The third one I mentioned here is the fellowship of God's people. God doesn't want Christians to live independent from one another, but in relation to each other. As the writer of Hebrews says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. As I say, one of the most important things we can do to aid in the sanctification of our fellow believers is to encourage them. Our fellowship with other believers is inexorably tied to the scripture and prayer. We learn and understand about scripture from our interaction with fellow believers. Paul says that we are competent to instruct one another. We pray for our fellow believers. They pray for us. I want to highlight here one way that our fellowship with God's people is essential to our sanctification. You've heard, and I'm sure, the expression, some things are better caught than taught. And there's an application of this to our sanctification as it relates to our fellowship with God's people, our relationship with people here at CBC. There's no substitute for seeing holiness on display. We need to see what holiness looks like in everyday life. Therefore, we need to be able to say to our fellow believers, if you want to know what Christianity looks like, watch me. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The same Corinthians, he says, therefore, I encourage you to imitate me and the Philippians. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put in practice. But notice what he also says to these same Philippians. Join join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Keep your eyes on other believers who live like we do. As I say, Paul imitated Christ. Other believers lived their lives as Paul did. We keep our eyes on them. In the local church, we can and should see sanctification on display. So I say we dare not neglect or even despise these ordinary means of sanctification that God has provided for us. I was listening to an interview uh, with Dr. Philip Riken, who is being interviewed for a new book he's written, When Trouble Comes. I don't know if you know the name of Philip Riken. He was for many years the pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. That's a kind of a well-known church in Philadelphia. 
It was pastored in the past by some well-known exegetes, Bible uh, uh, teachers, Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce. Boyce. These men wrote books and quite quite famous. And he pastored that church for a number of years. And then a few years ago, he left and became president of Wheaton College. And he's being interviewed about this book, When Trouble Comes, because in the book, he's trying to help us because of a difficult experience he went through in his life. He said this was the most difficult experience of his life. He was discouraged. He was depressed. He was so bad off, he says, that I seriously thought about taking my own life. And uh, he got medical help. He went to the doctor to see if there was some medical problem or something going on. And the interviewer said, well, interviewer said, uh, well, what got you through this? How did you get through this? And he said, well, actually, it was just the ordinary means of grace. And he mentions these three, scripture, prayer, fellowship of God's people. He said, I read scripture and people read scripture to me. They explained scripture. People prayed for me. I prayed for myself. And God's people worked with me and helped me through this dark experience. So it's these ordinary means of grace that will help us and bring us together for our sanctification. Well, this is six weeks, so I thought I better have a take-home truth here. (laughs) Sanctification is essential to the mission, the Great Commission. The church cannot carry out the mission without sanctified members, without Christians who are becoming holy, Christians who are growing in their maturity. I've listed some books here on sanctification if you're interested in doing more reading The ones with an asterisk beside them are ones that uh, we have in our resource center. I've mentioned some of these in the past. The one by Kevin DeYoung, I didn't get a chance to mention. mention. If you're interested in just a small book on sanctification, a general book, this is probably the best single book called The Whole in Our Holiness, a very good book. But these others are also helpful. There's even John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress there. We haven't mentioned that, but... John Bunyan's great, great, everybody, people say you should read that once in your lifetime, and I did, so I don't have to worry about that. (laughs) But I finally got around to it some years ago, but it is a great book on sanctification, actually. It's really quite helpful. (laughs) Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together to study this important doctrine, and we pray for your grace. We need it, and we need the help of other folks in our congregation. To encourage us in our own sanctification. So help us and give us strength and grace in the days ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.